0: Good morning, everybody. I'm Emily. I'm one of the co-pastors here. My other co-pastor, Ken, is still in Israel. He'll be back, I think, tomorrow. And my wife, Rachel, is home sick with some kind of throat thing. And I'm fine, but my throat is a little dry, so I might be taking a few extra sips of water here. I wanted to tell you guys, Advent starts next weekend. And so like I did last year, I created a podcast that's just a short daily podcast. It's like five to eight minutes long, and it has some guided spaces for prayer, Um, a scripture reading that's based around a theme, and then I close it with a different version of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel with each one of those. So those will be available starting next Sunday on our website as well as on iTunes, Um, and they're they're free, clearly. You can just download them every day. If they're not free, I'm probably breaking copyright law, so there's that. But today I am actually going to start our Advent sermon series a week early, and the main reason is because I'm a little bit excited about it. And I think it's just because it's my totally nerdy Bible self, because what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about the monsters of the Bible. And you might wonder, okay, Emily, how do monsters of the Bible fit into Advent? I can connect anything. (laughs) Advent means waiting, (laughs) right? It's a season when the church practices waiting on the presence of God to show up, and it culminates in the celebration of Christmas. And I think many of the reasons we need God to break into our lives um, are personified in Scripture in various and often terrifying forms. So this morning, we're going to be talking about the demon Rabisu, who's a crouching predator. There's Satan, the accusing force. There's Leviathan, the sea serpent, who talks about systemic injustice. There's dragons and giants. And sometimes in Scripture, God shows up in pretty alarming form as well like when God is depicted surrounded by all these like enormous hybrid creatures in the book of Ezekiel. So today I'm going to start with Rabisu, the crouching predator. And I'm going to warn you this is a little bit thicker and denser than most of my sermons. We had a, we had a nice light Psalm 23 last week. So just kind of stick with me here. The only time that the creature Rabisu shows up in scripture is in an inference in Genesis chapter 4. That inference, actually, though, sets up an entire metaphor that runs through the thinking of the Hebrew Bible and some of the New Testament. And so in the scene where we see Rabisu, we have two brothers, Cain and Abel. You've probably heard of them, right? And they had just made their offerings to God. And we were told that God regarded Abel's offering, but he didn't regard Cain's. And so Cain notices uh, that God doesn't seem to notice his offering, and his face, we're told, falls into a scowl. And God turns to Cain and says, Why are you incensed, and why is your face fallen? For whether you offer well or whether you do not, at the tent flap, sin crouches. And for you, it is longing, but you must rule over it. At the tent flap, sin crouches. So that Hebrew word there that's used for crouches or lurks is believed to have been borrowed from the Akkadian people. It's a word that's used for a vampiric demon named Rabisu, who is believed to crouch in the entryways of homes ready to attack. Right, so it's just kind of menace people. And John Walton of Wheaton, so we're talking a very conservative scholar here, he says the fact that the text mentions the desire to master Cain favors Rabisu as being a demon for the interpretation of this. So at the tent flap, sin crouches, and for you it is longing, but you must rule over it. So it's like God is saying, Cain, I see right now that you're toying with the idea of taking your anger out on your brother, right? And your sin there is like the vampire demon, Rehsebu, and it's lurking in the dark corner and it's waiting to pounce on you and master you and suck the life out of you, but you must master it. Cain doesn't manage to rule over his sin, and he does murder his brother. And so we're meant to understand Rabisu overtook Cain. Well, this strange little image comes in the context of stories that are wrestling with what it means to be human, right? So the first few chapters of Genesis are poetry, right? They're not trying to tell us something in a literal way, but in a poetic, philosophical way. So in the beginning, God created the humans to rule over the plants and the animals, right? The humans were the most intelligent of the created beings. They were said to be made in God's likeness. And God entrusted them with tending and tilling the earth and living in harmony with themselves and others and God and the creation. Like they were naming the animals and just generally partnering with God to take care of the world around them. But instead of imitating the loving care of their creator, the the humans imitated (laughs) a beast, a snake, and they lost their capacity to justly rule over nature in this story. All right, so they were cursed to have the animals in the land rule over them instead, and they would struggle to produce food. So we had that story, and then along comes Cain and his brother. And the question the Bible, I think, is asking here is, could Cain be the kind of human who could be trusted to take care of himself and the people around him? right? Could he regain what his parents, Adam and Eve, had lost? And the answer was no. It's a pretty cynical way of looking at humanity here. And he murders his brother, and when God asks him where Abel is, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And so in murdering his brother and washing his hands of any obligation to care for his fellow humans, we're told that it was like Cain was overcome by some evil creature, right? He wasn't ruling over nature the way his parents were instructed, But no, nature, this kind of distorted and creepy form of nature, overtook him. And this sets up a particular picture of what sin is like for most of the Bible. But first, I want to say this, especially after listening to Richard this morning, right? The word sin has all kinds of baggage, especially for those of us from conservative faith backgrounds, and maybe even more especially for any of us who are any form of minority. A good definition of sin that I find helpful is anything that keeps us from healthy connections with ourselves, with each other, with God, and with the world around us. And there are some things that you might call sin that are universal. You know, murder tends to harm our connections regardless of where we are or when we live. But some sins vary from culture to culture. And some things which were historically thought of as sin, we've come to realize were actually not sin. Right? Well, Just a very obvious example, a slave running away from its owner in 19th century America might have been thought to be a sinner by white southern landowners. right, so let's just name that the Bible has been weaponized time and again by the powerful against the powerless to name things as sin that are not in order to control them. Did I say that well enough? Let's name that the Bible has been weaponized time and again by the powerful against the less powerful in naming things as sin, but which are not in order to control others' behavior. And actually, that weaponization of scripture is sin. People have called my lovely, wonderful marriage a sin. It's the most life-giving and liberating gift I've ever received. A hundred years ago, a married man might have told his wife that he was hurting her connection with him by speaking out and demanding a right to vote or to work, but he'd be wrong, right? So what someone to label sin are actually acts of divine liberation. So I just want to freely admit that sin is, in some senses, subjective. And I think it's up to every generation and every culture to figure out how to think well about those things that do harm and that cause pain to God and our connections, both individually as well as systematically, like systemically. And we'll come back to that here in a little bit. But first, I want to look at two themes that emerge from this verse about sin crouching at Cain's door. First, what we see is a metaphor that tells us that sin, which are things that hurt our connections, it's like a vampiric demon crouching at our doors. Like That's a really vivid picture, isn't it? If it's vampiric, it sucks the life out of us. If it's lurking at our doors, well, we better be on the lookout for it. Essentially this, sin is something that doesn't bring us life, and none of us is immune from behaving badly, right? Those are themes that recur in the Bible. Second, the scene also sets up an expectation that when you read a story about humans overcoming or taming animals in scripture, the protagonist in the story is probably meant to be heroic or godly or mostly godly anyway. So this is a little bit of just like biblical literacy, When we read a story where animals overtake or rule the protagonist or others in the story, the people who are being overcome by nature are probably doing something they shouldn't be doing. Right, so humans ruling over animals tends to symbolize righteousness, if that's the proper word. And humans being ruled by animals symbolize sin. This is just a little clue as we read different stories in the Bible. And once you see it, a bunch more stories start to make sense. So I'm gonna take this little odd story for example. And it's literally three verses long, but it's going to leave you feeling like, what in the world? It's always been like one of my favorite little stories in the Bible. It's about a prophet named Elisha. And Elisha is walking between two cities. He's going between Jericho and Bethel. And here's what it says in these three verses in 2 Kings. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. And as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. He turned around, and he looked at them, and he called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came up out of the woods, and they mauled 42 of the boys. And then Elisha went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he went on to Samaria. (laughs) What do you do with that? I have always wanted to preach on this story, I have to admit. I just had to wait for the right sermon. You know, so this great prophet of God is calling down a curse on children for making fun of him. And these bears come out and maul the kids. And it's like, I don't want to be too morbid, but even like thinking about what this would look like, right? Two bears mauling 42 kids, that's, that's even ridiculous, right? Because I think at least some of them could run away. I would hope. <laughs> how many bears or how many kids can a bear maul at once? <laughs> and how is it not a sin that the prophet called down a curse on kids? Right? How is God good if God sends bears to kill innocents? I mean, if I cursed the kids down in the basement, you guys would be like, oh, my gosh. I would be like, oh, my gosh. But I think the point of the story here is that Elisha was a righteous man, so he's not overcome by more primal, beastly portion of creation, but the kids are being ruled by nature because they made fun of him for something that he couldn't help, right? He's bald. Hashtag bald is beautiful. (laughs) Right, so I don't think that this story actually took place, but I think it was just meant to convey what sin is like. Making fun of people is like being overcome by the most ferocious, primal part of ourselves. Right? You have to rule over it or it will rule over you, is what the Bible is warning us. At least I hope that's what that story means. There's another story in the book of Daniel, and it's about an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had several dreams where God was warning him about all of his evil ways. Right? And the prophet Daniel was sent to him to interpret some of these dreams. And so in one of the dreams, the king was dreaming about a large tree that was really healthy and tall and towering and strong. And then in his dream, the tree was cut down to a stump. And then it gets really weird. The stump turns into a human, kind of a human stump. And then its mind is transformed from a human mind into the mind of an animal for seven years. Right? So we've got a stump person with an animal mind. And this, like, human animal, it goes outside and it lives among the wild animals in the wilderness. And Daniel told the king, well, that stump animal is you, Nebuchadnezzar, in the dream. Right? This king was the tree. He said, you'll grow mighty and strong, but soon you're going to be cut down from power. And for a time, you're going to become like an animal. And the text says this. It says, Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from human society "'Ate grass like oxen, his body was bathed with the dew of heaven, "'and his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, "'and his nails became like bird claws.'" Right, so I think what it's trying to tell us here is his evil ways made him more like an animal than like a human. I don't think he actually turned into a giant, like, falcon or something. His hair was like feathers. His nails start to sprout claws. Because of his evil desires, Nebuchadnezzar was turning into this inhumane predator. We see similarities with other tales that involve humans and animals. Right? There are other Bible characters who were overcome by beasts, Include Jonah, who was swallowed by a whale, Balaam, who couldn't control his talking donkey, Pharaoh, who was overcome by locusts and frogs and such. And none of these characters are heroic or even all that sympathetic. But on the other hand, the humans that are meant to be portrayed more as heroes are seen as ruling over the beasts, Noah lived in an ark with two of every kind of animal. David slayed lions and bears with a slingshot to protect his sheep. Daniel sat peacefully among the lions in the lion's den. The apostle Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake, and it didn't cause him any harm. Peter, James, and John caught a boatload of fish. You now, are we kind of getting the general metaphor of what this is trying to tell us when we're reading various stories? Like it's trying to tell us there's a primal part of us that wants to make selfish choices. And when we give into it, it's like being overcome by our animal side rather than being overcome by our made-in-the-image-of-God side. So the question, like, it's hard to talk about sin in progressive Christian spaces, I think. And the question becomes, like, well, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with those things that cause us not to live up to our best selves? Well, I'm going to answer that by telling you another really weird Bible story. And this one's from Numbers 21. And in this one, like stick with me here, because this is, this is like kind of the crux of it. God's people had fled out of slavery in Egypt, and they were hoping to make it to their ancestral land, but the people started to get impatient, and they started grumbling. And they asked God and Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt only to die in the wilderness? There's no food and there's no water, and we hate this miserable place. And this is where it gets awful because I've got a snake phobia, but venomous snakes came out and bit a bunch of the people and they died. Numbers 21, 5 to 9. I'm going to hit all the weird ones today. People came to Moses, and they said, we've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to God to take away these serpents. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, this is weird. Okay, Moses, make a poisonous serpent and put it on a pole. Oh, make it of bronze and put it on a pole. And everybody who is bitten by a snake will look at it and they'll live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person was supposed to look at the serpent and live. So if you guys have ever seen the medical symbol of a snake around a stick, that's where this comes from. Poisonous snakes were biting people because they were being ungrateful and accusing, right? So this is fitting that pattern of they were being overcome by animals. And God told Moses to make this bronze stake, put it on a pole. Um, that story, I think, might have just languished as yet another strange story in the Bible that would kind of pass over like the bear one, except for the fact that Jesus compares himself to that bronze snake on a stick. All right, so most people, if you grew up in any sort of church background, you know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, right? One of the most famous verses in the Bible. But the part we leave out is in the verse just before it, Jesus says... Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Right, so Jesus is comparing himself to the snake on a stick, and then for God so loved the world. And the fact that it's a snake harkens back to that original story in Genesis, right? The very first time that the humans don't imitate God, but look to their more base or primal desires to imitate. And I think what Jesus might be saying is that to be healed from the effects of our sins, we have to look at them. That we have to reflect on our selfish, beastly nature. And we have to meditate on Jesus, hanging on a cross the way that bronze serpent hung on a pole. And we have to meditate on what humanity did to put an innocent man to death. We have to recognize ourselves as perpetrators of these harmful acts. Right? Our false accusations and our lies and our violence and our propensity to spell rumors about people. You know, all the, all the things. Our capacity for selfishness. And it's only when we can face these various parts of us that are capable of doing harm for us and others and God and the wider world that we can start a process of healing the world and of healing ourselves in the world. Right? So you have to face Rabisu to rule over it instead of letting it lurk in the dark corners, hiding away, ready to pounce. Now, I have two cautions about this interpretation of sin. You know, so this is kinda of me in dialogue with the Bible here. And this metaphorical relationship between animals and humans. First, there's a trend in some Christian circles to take this metaphor and to talk about sin as something that makes us less than human. And that we become truly more human when we make choices that honor and love those who are around us. But I actually think putting humans on a scale of less human or more human is not helpful, and it sets us up to categorize some people as inhuman, and categorize other people as better humans. And I think when humans start to classify other humans as less human, bad things happen. Right? When our current White House occupants started calling immigrants animals, I knew we were in trouble and that there would inevitably be human rights violations. Even now, there's 5,500 kids that are separated from their families. No human is an animal, including that White House occupant. That we all deserve human dignity, fair trials, right? I'm snapping like I'm cool. (laughs) Humane treatment. And I think that we can take the metaphor for what it is, right? It's a metaphor, without adopting that sort of language, right? We can say, sin kind of feels like a vampire demon crouching in a corner, You know, it kind of feels like I might be giving into a baser part of myself, because I think that's what the writers of Scripture are trying to convey. The second thing I want to note is that there's a balance to be found when reflecting on our own capacity for sin. And I think that in our post-Protestant space here in which we find ourselves, um, I've had a lot of people ask questions about what do we do about sin? How do we talk about it? Because many of us grew up with these really clear sets of rules. And now that we've either questioned or discarded some of those rules, and for good reason, it can make us feel a little bit untethered. Does that make sense? So it's like, how do you talk about it in a way that doesn't feel just triggering or awful? I think Jesus and the Apostle Paul addressed this in various ways. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote in the first letter to the Corinthians, he, he was dealing in a culture that's not too unlike ours in terms of... Yeah, there were, there's a wide stream of Judaism in his own time. Jesus tended to kind of side with a more progressive, open, for interpretation, love your neighbor um, kind of stream. But some of the people that were coming out of Judaism at that time and who were following Jesus, they were either the people who were being harmed by that system, or they were some, we were told, from like the party of the Pharisees. So in some ways, I can see some parallels to the kinds of people who were being attracted to Jesus and to this sort of new way of, of following God here. And so Paul is writing this. He says, all things are lawful for me. And here he's talking about some of the um, stricter interpretations of the Jewish law. He says, look, all things are lawful for me. I don't feel bound by that. But not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, right? So here he's, he's invoking that language of being ruled over by sin. And then later he he reiterates, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up, right? So he said, don't seek your own advantage, but seek the advantage of the other, is how he ends that. So he's addressing these people who find themselves in a similar situation where some of the rules they grew up with they found wanting, and they were experiencing freedom in either reinterpreting or in disregarding some of the things that they had known, which is good, it's great but some perhaps went so far as to do things that were harming themselves and others. And so Paul's kind of cautioning them, saying, look, everything's lawful, but not everything's beneficial to you. Right? So Paul's telling people, look, he doesn't want them to be dominated by their appetites. He doesn't want them to tear others down. He tells them, don't seek their own advantage at somebody else's expense. And I think in a cultural moment like we're in, where saying the Bible says so just isn't good enough because so many of us have been hurt by that, I think we have to change our question from, is this sin, to a much broader set of questions. Is this behavior helping me and other people to thrive? Is this harming anyone? Do I feel closer to God or further? Is this harming our planet? When I act this way, am I acting out of love or am I acting out of some sort of self-interest? Would I want someone to treat me this way? Is what I'm doing producing good things for me and others, right? And there's a balance to be found in there, right? It's not just, is this good for me, but what is the impact on others, my significant other, my kids, my community? Will my choices continue to produce good things into the future for me and others, not just like an immediate fix? And I think ours is such an individualistic culture that it sometimes is a little bit less natural for us to consider the entire system or the network of our relationships than it can be in other cultures. And sometimes we have to choose between two not-so-great options, you know, due to various systemic injustices or to the choices that other people have made that we cannot control. But we do our best to think ethically in light of what Jesus and his disciples taught us, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And that can take some work. And I think it's actually far less easy than saying the Bible says, because it means that we have to think ethically within our own culture and context. On the other hand, I think focusing too much on our propensity to sin isn't helpful either. Right? So in my particular background, I had church services and conferences where I was made to feel pretty awful about myself. And I remember going through a period of my life where I was afraid that if I died when I slept and I hadn't named everything I had done wrong, that I was toast. And that's not a healthy spirituality, right? That's not what I want for us. But the only other place in the Bible that this snake on a stick is mentioned, right? It's mentioned in that Old Testament story where Moses made it, and it's mentioned by Jesus. The only other place where that appears is in 2 Kings 18, when we're told that a good king named Hezekiah, he took that snake on a stick and he broke it into pieces. So, um, because at that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. And so what had happened is that people had gotten so obsessed with looking at their own sinful nature that they started to worship it. And in the same way, I think that sometimes we can make an idol out of reflecting on the cross if we're ignoring Jesus's life and resurrection, which I think are far more important for how to live. So there's this balance of we should reflect on our sin that led to Jesus's death, but we cannot like, just live only in that place, like self-lashing. And I think this is the balance We have to look at the sinful nature in order to be healed and to be free from being dominated by it, but we can't focus so much that we forget that we're deeply loved children of God. And Paul tells us all throughout the New Testament, I was always struck that he calls us saints. Over and over, dear saints, dear saints, not dear sinners, dear saints. And he can do that because of grace. And this is what Rachel is always so helpful to me. She's like, Emily, don't forget grace. I talk about justice a lot, but grace is important. Grace is this giant, unfair idea that we are all loved and accepted by God regardless of who we are, what we've done, or what we're currently doing, if only we will believe that we are loved and accepted by God. Grace is this umbrella idea that tells us that we are entirely forgiven, even when we're not entirely perfect and never will be. And then we're told we have to extend that grace to each other. Paul tells us in the letters to Ephesians and Colossians, he says, bear with one another with gentleness and with humility, forgiving each other for your faults. Right? In other words, give yourselves a lot of space to be wrong and to make mistakes and to grow because God gives us that kind of space. And that we're to refrain from judging each other because only God can do that well. Right? We don't get to put people on a scale of who's more human or who's less human. What we do get to do is think through together how to behave in ways that can help us thrive, knowing that sometimes we can be wrong and that sometimes things will be messy and that sometimes we have to go through messy things to get the kind of wisdom that we need. We need wisdom, not judgment. And Paul's main concern with sin is that it causes us to not thrive, right? It makes our lives more painful and more complicated in the long run. He's not concerned that it's going to keep us from God's love. He says, for I'm convicted, I'm not convicted. It's convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can keep us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right, so Rabisu, the demon that is the crouching vampire predator, holds no power over us because we can face our own demons without fear of being separated from God. That ship sailed, right? We're forgiven, and we are loved. So we often end here by, with having a couple of minutes, um, two or three minutes of silent meditation. And people and babies make noise. That's completely fine. And I thought, um, I know it was a lot. It was kind of a lot of information packed into one sermon. And I thought I would offer you three things that you might want to meditate on. One, maybe you're being wronged by somebody who's doing you a lot of harm. And you might want to spend the time just Asking God, you know, like, can I feel your presence in the midst of this? And maybe even just crying out for God to convict that person and to work on your behalf. Maybe you know that you've been, like, making some mistakes and your life's kind of a mess right now because some of the choices that you've made. And maybe you just want to sit before God and feel God's unconditional love and ask for wisdom about, like, what do I do next? Or maybe you've been told over and over that you're awful by people who have been part of church communities or part of your family, and you just want to spend the time like almost feeling like God is just like unzipping you a little bit and being like, I just love you for all that you are. So pick one of those three, whatever's kind of resonating with you, and let's take two or three minutes and let the Holy Spirit just talk to us in this space. So come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, I ask that you would go to battle on behalf of those of us who are feeling like we are just caught in systemic injustices. I ask that your spirit would go before us. Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom to understand how our actions affect us and those around us because we trust that you want what's best for us. It's not a matter of Trying to tell us that we're good or bad or not good enough, but it's a matter of like, you want us to thrive as much as we want to thrive. So I ask that you would give us wisdom as we approach you with different questions in our lives. And for those of us who might even still have these little sneaking suspicions in the darkest corners of their minds or hearts that maybe they're just not good enough for you or that maybe something about them is actually wrong, I ask that your spirit would just like shine light into those hidden places and that that rebisu or that feeling of ickiness would just flee from those entryways in our minds, and that, Lord, your spirit of love would infiltrate us, that the voice of the accuser would be silenced, and that the voice of the advocate would replace it. I ask your blessing on all of us. In the name of Jesus, amen.